0: Hello and good evening, and welcome to my little art history podcast. So, I've never done podcasting before, never done anything like this before, I am just doing this as a way to just sort of, um, just share my love and knowledge for all things to do with art in a very, very broad sense of the word, you know, I'm not just going to be talking about... Paintings and sculpture and that sort of thing. I'll be talking about art in a very broad sense and history as well And maybe I'll talk about some other things. Who knows? It's the first ever one. I have no fucking idea What I'm doing But I'm doing it and I hope you enjoy it and um, I hope to update this regularly however <clears throat> that might be a little bit few and far between and also I'd like to apologise for any coughs I might make because I do have a very mild cold at the moment Um, but that should not be persisting into future episodes but yeah so this is my first one and for my first one I thought I would just start off by talking about something that is probably not considered... Largely part of the Art history Sort of canon Well you know art historians have Written about these But what Most people will think about When it comes to The watercolours of uh, John White Is Not so much the fact that these are Incredibly important um, Paintings And incredibly important ethnographic images um, the what springs to mind for most people is the fact that John White was the governor of the Roanoke colony who disappeared and the disappearance of the Roanoke co- colony has overshadowed a lot of the discussion it's become a very sort of important part of American history, a sort of I guess American founding tales and mythologies and just because no one really knows what happened to the colonists and we're never going to know and if you want to know i mean there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of youtube unexplained and true crime for some reason uh videos talking about what happened to the roanoke colony was it aliens probably not but we just don't know we just won't know um And of course, American Horror Story did a whole series on uh, Roanoke, although it had very little to do with the actual colony itself. Um, I've not seen it for a long time, but I I did watch it maybe, what, a long time ago now, maybe six or seven years ago, I watched American Horror Story, Roanoke. It was just not a lot to do with the colony, and um, Kathy Bates' character in it was not a person in Real life, but you don't go to American Horror Story for historical accuracy, you just go there to be entertained by just the sheer campiness of the whole thing. Anyway, since that is the sort of main attraction when it comes to talking about Roanoke, I will sort of briefly explain the disappearance and a little bit of history of the colony. So, the colony was established around 1585 as part of Sir Walter Raleigh's big colonial project, going to America, coming back with uh, things we all love very much, potatoes and tobacco, Um, although he did discover these uh, new world um, goods, probably through very exploitative means, and I'm in no way Um, saying what the colonists did was at all good in this podcast but we'll come back to that a bit later so Roanoke colony 1585 is founded John White is appointed governor he brings his family over his daughter and her husband and his daughter actually gives birth to the first English person to be born in what is now modern day America so that's quite interesting these people were sort of the founders of what we now call America and I'm just trying to be very careful about how I word a lot of these things because the indigenous people they were there first they've been there since the get go that's their land that is their country and how those people have been treated by Europeans and all kinds of people who've gone to that country is atrocious and it's yeah yeah we are on their side but nevertheless the artwork created that we're about to talk about is quite important (laughs) again we'll come back to this I do apologise this is my first time podcasting I've got notes I got everything I'm just uh winging it a little bit anyway so uh the colony founded in fifteen eighty five. Um, it's it seems to go alright for a couple of years. There's some people, some English, who sort of come and go, who aren't there the whole time. They're just there to see how they're getting on to do some uh, studying and things like that. People like Thomas Harriet, who we will come back to, who's quite important to all this, um, especially the art historical part of it as well. And since they're really the first people to sort of try and permanently settle there, they've not... They don't really know how the land works, this is completely new to all of them. Uh, the Spanish have also colonised a lot of America just south of, uh, they're in Virginia if I haven't already mentioned that, they've colonised some of the more southern parts, hence why a lot of southern America, the southern states they have a lot of Spanish names, up until about the 1820s that was all part of Mexico, until the Spanish-American war when the whole west coast, the south, all becomes part of the United States, so the Spanish are about, they've been there a little bit longer, well quite a while longer, the Spanish have been there for maybe about a century more, the Spanish and the Portuguese, as we know through people like Christopher Columbus, they're some of the first people to go there, so they kind of know what they're doing a bit more, there's sort of that threat there, Spain and England are at war, at this time where there's threats of war and they will try to go to war a couple of years later, Um, So there is the threat of uh, Spanish attacks, Spanish invasions, those kinds of things. The land is difficult to cultivate. You have the indigenous people there who are... Some of them are quite friendly to the English. Some of them, very understandably, not so much. So it's just a difficult environment to live in. They don't quite know how to deal with the weather. They're not quite sure about the plants and things like that. It's a difficult place to live. So John White, the governor he decides to go back to England in 1587 to go and get some supplies for the colony. And because of various reasons, the threat of the Spanish invasion of England, the Armada conflict, uh, that happens around 1588. So he is delayed for a couple of years. He does try to get back, but he keeps getting pushed back. And even when he does set sail, he is held up by the Armada. And when he got there, they were just all gone and I actually have um John White's account of him coming across the colony when he got back um so he says therefore at my departure from them in 1587 I willed them that if they should happen to be distressed in any of those places that then they should carve or carve over the letters uh, or name across in this form, but we found no such sign of distress. And having well considered of this, we passed towards the place where they were left in sundry houses. But we found the houses taken down, and the place very strongly enclosed with a high palisado of great trees with curtains and flankers, very fort like, and one of the chief trees or posts. At the right side of the entrance had the bark taken off and five foot from the ground in fair capital letters was graven, carved. I am reading this in an exact transcript from the early modern English. so Some of the letters are wrong. I do apologise. Anyway, uh, ground in fair capital letters was carved Croatoan without any cross or sign of distress. This done, we entered into the palisado where we found many bars of iron, two pigs of lead, four iron fowlers, iron sackers shot and such like heavy things thrown here and there, almost overgrown with grass and weeds. From thence, we went along by the waterside towards the point of the creek to see if we could find any of their boats or pinnace? Pines? (laughs) Pines? I don't know, Uh, but we could perceive no sign of them, nor any of the last falcons and small ordnance which were left with them at my departure from them. At our return from the creek, some of our sailors meeting us told us that they had found where the divers, diggers, the the spelling in early modern English is really inconsistent, so it's hard to know what it's saying. Anyway, they told us that that they had found where... A diverse chests had been hidden and long since then digged up again and broken up and much of the goods in them spoiled and scattered about, but nothing left of such things as the savages knew any use of, undefaced. So that is his account of coming across the colony Um, after he returns in around 1590 and it, it's hard to tell when the colony had actually been abandoned in the three years he'd been away. Um, you know and the fact that he comes and he finds things just kind of like chucked about someone's clearly gone through what belongings were left but then also the houses had been taken down you know it seems like there was a conceited effort to try and you know sort of take things down in a sort of structured way which does suggest that people knew they had to leave and uh the marks of Croatoan carved onto the post. Um the Croatoan were a nearby I, I'm not I don't think the Croatoans are a nation like how um the Navajo are a nation. I, I, I'm not I'm not entirely sure that's really bad. Um if you're listening to this and you do know please please just pull me the fuck up on this because I really should know this but so the Croatone anyway, they're a indigenous community who lived nearby and had actually befriended the English. One of the people from that community called Manteo, um, who actually did learn some English and did travel to England on one of the trips back to England. Um it's possible that the winters just got really, really, really bad and Manteo and the Croatones were just like just come back with us we'll look after you and just because it's 1590 there's just not a lot of ways to make contact. Uh, There's stones uh, that were found that are supposedly meant to have been written by John White's daughter Eleanor sort of explaining what had happened to them but the sort of authenticity of these stones has been very up for debate and I'm not here to talk about that so I'm not going to go into that but anyway... Um, So it's entirely possible they went to go and live with the Croatoans and then about 20 years later when Jamestown set up some of the people from Jamestown said they'd heard about sort of seeing European looking people around uh, some of the Powhatans who were not particularly keen uh, on the Roanoke Colony, I think they got into some fights Um it's apparently some of them had said to the Jamestown community that, oh yeah, no, we, we killed some of them, but these have not been verified and then there was talk of sightings of people in sort of European dress around that area, but those people might not necessarily have been English, they could have been Spanish, they could have been Portuguese, possibly even French. Dutch. Um, There's just a lot of different Europeans sort of cutting about at that time so we just don't know, we just don't really know what happened to them. So that's the disappearance that everyone goes on about. It holds a lot of intrigue, I can sort of see why, you know, it's such a thing and it's sort of, you know, one of the, it's like, what happened to the First European, one of the first European colonies in what was to become the United States of America. It's like an origin myth uh, type thing. Kind of interesting, but I think just it's it's all speculation and we're never going to know. It does make for a good story, but I think what is the most interesting thing about the Roanoke Colony happens when the colony is actually operating. When it's like fully functioning before John White decides to go back to England, um, when he's still there. And this is where we get on to the art history, the good stuff, what we're all here for. So John White, as well as being the governor for uh, the Roanoke Colony, he was also an artist. And he made some very, very, very beautiful watercolours. Um, if you go on the British Museum's website and look at and just sort of search for John White, you can see a lot of them, and you can see just how interesting they are. Because what's so interesting is that he yeah he's documenting um, sort of the natural phenomena, the flora, the fauna, and uh, the the people that live there. But he's not just documenting the people; he's documenting how they live, how they cook, their ceremonies, how they bury their, well not bury their dead but how they like, I don't know, just sort of, how, what they do with the dead in their community, he makes drawings of all these and interestingly one of his drawings does show conflict between probably the Powhatans and the English and on, on boats, it's very, very interesting they're in canoes and the English are shooting up at some of the Powhatan on the riverbank who are firing at them in turn with bows and arrows and of course that would be a really difficult thing to draw from life but it's probably drawn from something John White had definitely seen because you can tell of course the the plants and the animals they're all drawn from life, they're all drawn from life and they're really interesting because what's so fun about them, I guess, is that this is the first time um, sort of Europeans, or well, the English anyway, have come across things like pineapples and bananas, and they're very, very, very well drawn, they're very well drawn, but the pineapple, he's given little names to them all, and the pineapple is called the pine fruit, which is very funny. I find it funny anyway, um, and then the bananas are called like platanos, which is the the word still used for bananas in Spanish, so that is, we can probably assume from that 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 is sort of a Algonquin word for bananas, the word we, well the Spanish still use for bananas does come from the name given to them by the people that come from the same place they come from, yes and Al- Algonquin is sort of a umbrella term for the various communities that lived around Roanoke on the Virginia coast. Um, so yeah, no, the plant drawings are really beautiful, really beautiful drawings of flowers and they are presented like a lot of sort of um, very academic scientific depictions of plants of flowers are being shown at that time, it's just the thing, like like specimen drawings, they have no background, they're not situated on any platform, anything like that. It's just the thing, the object, the subject on a white background and maybe in some of them you have the full fruit or plant Um, and see how that looks and then next to it will be sort of a cross section of it, you can see where it's kind of been cut in half. A little bit so you can see that inside of it very scientific but the thing about this sort of way of framing specimens as you would, plants and animals, he does also depict the people in this way. Um, They are sort of depicted without background, without setting. Yes he does have some uh, drawings in which he includes the plants, the animals, the people all in a setting. There's really nice ones of uh, people fishing um, They're really nice but on the whole when he's depicting the people they are depicted like specimens but what is such an interesting sort of juxtaposition to the specimen like depiction of these people is that they are not racist caricatures not at all racist caricatures they're very you know these are clearly drawn from life he clearly asked these people to sit for him. And he painted them very, very faithfully. And you get a really, really clear picture of what these people would have looked like. And it's just, they're just so interesting. It's like documentary photography. Before there was documentary photography. And then some of his, some of my favourite ones is sort of where he's painted the people. Again, it's really strange because you see all the people and you see... The objects that they would have been using in these ceremonies these ceremonial paintings um, they have their objects there's sort of posts coming out of the ground carved posts and things like that but there is no ground there's a fire in the middle there's no scenery there's no nothing it's just the people dancing round the fire and that's that, those are interesting ones they're really beautiful and you can tell that he had been invited along to witness these ceremonies and he was maybe drew some of it from life but you can tell the people are in motion they are dancing as part of a ceremony so that would be be really hard to sort of capture from life but he definitely saw this from life Um, and I just think those are fascinating and as well he does uh, very sort of interesting ones where there's no people Those kind of people, kind of animals, but he does things like how they grill their fish, and it's the fire and a sort of rack over the fire, and he's put the fish on top of the rack, and the fish are getting smoked, and it's uh, just really, really interesting. And sort of you know how they cook their stew, and it has the pot over the fire, and but the thing about that is that wouldn't have been all that much different. For cooking practices in England at that time you know it's still like that would have been the same for most places there's no ovens no nothing like that things just had to be cooked over a fire everywhere in the world if you wanted to cook food and okay yes in England depending on what kind of house you lived in you might have had a chimney you might have had a full kitchen for people to cook things for you in but like on the whole I think at that time it's still you know Things were just cooked over the fire, and I'm not sure if that's him trying to draw similarities or create a difference, considering these people don't have chimneys, they don't really have spit roast, they don't really have anything like that. And I don't, I, I just can't tell if he's trying to be like, oh, savages just cooking the fish on the wood or cooking things on an open fire just outside. But the thing is, the sort of cooking images aren't given a background, aren't giving a setting, they appear to just be happening just out in the open. And it's hard to tell the context in which these were... How how where these sort of cooking practices would have taken place. So that's a bit annoying, John. You could have maybe thought about how uh, nearly 500 years later someone would want to know where that would have happened. But anyway, that's besides the point. On the subject of food... Um, he also created a lot of images of the Algonquin people just having a meal, sitting down and they've got like big wooden plate and they're sharing a meal together and uh, yeah so I just think that's nice, uh, nice to see just sort of these quite sort of domesticated, not uh, sort of scenes of domesticity, not domesticated, oh my god fucking hell, not not domesticated, scenes of domesticity. Um, in a culture that would have been just so completely different to anything the Roanoke settlers would have known you know I think that those are really nice and it, like I was saying it's like documentary photography before there was any documentary photography it's it's anthropological and ethnographical but like hundreds of years before those words were even come up with and I think that's just absolutely fa- fascinating that these people go to this place and immediately see the value of documenting and recording how other people live but like I will come back to this in more detail a bit later but we have to always be mindful that the English going to America, that was a colonial project done with the intent of getting land, getting resources civilising the people there, you know I don't We'll never know the intentions of the individual, but the intentions of the English Colonial Project were not noble. And none of the British Colonial Project The British Colonial Imperial Projects, none of them were noble, none of them were admirable. They were not done with good intentions. And that's something we should be mindful of when thinking about uh, these watercolours and... What you know they represent, and while they are very, very beautiful and they do tell us a lot, we do have to be mindful of that. But again, I will go into that a bit more a bit later on. Um, but so, John White's uh, watercolours um, were uh, transferred to engravings by a man called uh, Theodore de Bray. Theodore de Bray was hired by a man called Thomas Harriet. Thomas Harriot had also been at the Roanoke Colony. He was there in about 1585, 1586, and he was working alongside John White. And Thomas Harriot, he was not an artist, but he was a scientist. He's most well-known for his um, drawings of the moon that he did through a telescope before Galileo did it. He was doing similar stuff in England, and you should check those out. They're so, so, so interesting. They're from about 1609 um Thomas Harriet's moon moon studies and he was also a mathematician and you know, just sort of general math say sciencey guy. He he's quite interesting, but he's at Roanoke when he's quite a young man. And while he is doing I don't like not it's a general he's doing sort of general science later on, but at Roanoke he is doing social science and linguistics. And what he does there is really interesting because he sort of befriends Manteo, who I mentioned earlier, and he gets speaking to Manteo and through his conversations with Manteo he develops a phonetic alphabet of the Algonquin language. And he uses that to sort of learn the Algonquin language and uses that to communicate with them. He teaches them some English and he's able to sort of commune with uh, the indigenous people who are already there and um sort of seems and he is probably how john white managed to you know get into the ceremony see them just as they're living you know because like very very fucking understandably these strange white people probably wear a couple of them are wearing ruffs uh rock up and it's just like hi we're building houses now there's gonna be mistrust there there is gonna be mistrust but um thomas Harriet making a conscious effort to try and like learn the language that's probably how he he it was probably him and john white attending a lot of these ceremonies getting invited into people's homes being shown how they live their lives how they cook their food how they hunt for food things like that. Um Thomas Harriet spoke about going on a night fishing trip and sort of how they would bring like torches and um that would attract the fish. And then they'd come with the spears and just stab all the fish out of the water. And I think John John White does do watercolor depictions of the night fishing trip, so it's quite possible they were probably going to these things together and you can tell because Thomas Harriet, when he returned to England, he writes a book called, I will get the full title up because it's so long, so Thomas Harriet publishes a book called A Brief and True Report of the New Found Land of Virginia, of the commodities and of the nature and manners of the natural inhabitants discovered by the English colony there, seated by Sir Richard Grenville, knight in the year 1585 which remained under the government of 12 months at special charge and direction of the Honourable Sir Walter Raleigh, Knight, Lord, Warden of the Stanneries, who therein hath been favoured and authorised by Her Majesty and her letter's patents. This forebook is made in England by Thomas Harriot, servant to the above mentioned so what, Sir Walter, a member of the colony, and they're in discovering cum gratia et pre, prelegio caes matis speciale, last wee bits in Latin, I've, I've not done Latin since I was like 15 at school, there was a class of about 8 of us. Um, yeah, I, I can't I can't do the Latin anymore. But the last wee bits in Latin. So a brief and true true report of the newfound land of Virginia is just Thomas Harrit's book writing about what he saw there, what he learned about the people there. Um and as I mentioned earlier, it's um it features a lot of John White's watercolours after they'd been sort of transferred to print by Theodore De Bray, who I believe was Dutch um so de Bray does take some artistic liberties when transferring john white's watercolors to print some of them are a little bit slightly different to the original watercolors but it that's obviously what they're based on and some of these images imply that john white made even more watercolors but they've just been lost uh, to time um so a brief and true report is very very interesting because it could arguably be one of the first anthropological texts, like ever ever written ever written. It's quite thorough and it's all from his own. Like he was there, he saw this. This isn't just you know hearsay. You know this isn't just you know someone's told him about this. And he's writing a whole book entirely based on just descriptions he's heard it's all based on you know real life what he saw he was there he spoke with these people um so it's quite detailed um he does describe them as savages and sort of tries to sort of you know, sort of be like, oh look at the savages, they they have copper but they can't do the things with copper that we can do with copper we can make, sort of sheets, copper sheets for engraving with copper, they just have plain bits of copper round their neck that aren't engraved in any way therefore they are a simple people, you know, there's that kind of tone to it, he talks about the tattooing that um happens that that, that they sort of practiced and how this is like a a savage thing and a savage thing you know that you know that us english we are not savage we don't do those sorts of things and it's just like mate very soon there is gonna be a wee tattoo shop on every corner in london well not on every corner in london but you know there's a lot of tattoo shops about now there's quite a lot of them about it is quite it is very much a sort of cataloguing of this is what's over there in the new world and this is kind of how we can justify exploiting these people, basically. I will I have the brief and true report up here now, so I'm gonna try and find the bit where he talks about the let's find some quotes from it. Again, they are this is all in early modern english so there's a lot of bits that um are kind of difficult to read but i'm going to give it a go um where is it i've i've had to read this for university a couple of times um so it's it's been i can't remember where the various um bits that i'm referring to are I think I've found it. Yes, uh, as he describes um, one of the chiefs of the Pomeok people, Uh, he describes the the chief lady, the the chapter's called The Chief Lady of the Pomeok, I don't know how to pronounce that, pull me the fuck up on that if you know how to pronounce that, Um, and he says about her, for they wear their hair trussed up in a knot, As the maiden do which we spoke of before and have their skins pounced in the same manner yet they wear a chain of great pearls or beads of copper or smooth bones or fold about their necks bearing one arm in the same in the other hand they carry a gourd full of some kind of pleasant liquor um they tie deerskin of doubled about them crotching higher about their breasts, which hang down before almost to their knees and are almost altogether naked behind Yeah, it's it's sort of that that's just describing what the sort of women look like and it is very yeah it's quite sort of like oh look at them they don't wear a lot of clothes they wear jewelry made of bones oh isn't that a bit strange but nevertheless that that is that is how they dressed but it's it's his framing of it that makes it seem something that it would not be suitable for the english to be doing at that time and again it i guess in a lot of ways it is very much you know justifying the English being over there, because as I said earlier, all these colonial projects are done with the intent of exploitation, are done with the extent of just getting as much natural resources, as much of the land as you can to profit off of, and make uh, the Europeans very very wealthy, and as, as I've said before, when talking about the sort of early settlers, these early colonies, you just have to be really mindful of all that stuff because it is just, you know, I think like a lot of the work that John White and Thomas Harriet were doing, I don't, like more so Thomas Harriet because the Brief and True Report is very much, you know, a clear sort of cataloging of look at these people. We we could they they don't know shit. Look at them; they're dressed weird. They have tattoos. This is this is really strange. Like yeah, we can, we have to go over and civilize them, and you know while John White's watercolors are not racist caricatures, like at all. He does pre- present them as specimens, sort of being like oh right here are like. he, Equates the people with like the fish and the pineapples and the bananas. You know, it's it's sort of like it, it's dehumanising to depict them as specimens, which is just so strange when the actual sort of depictions of the the people are very humanising. It's 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 a strange one, but yeah, no, we just do have to be really mindful that. While we do see some sort of cross-cultural communication, some sort of cultural sharing to a certain extent happening here, that's mostly on the side of the Algonquin people. I don't think the English would have wanted to share all that much um, with the Algonquins, although Thomas Harriet did write in a letter saying that they'd brought over some toys for the Algonquin kids to, to play with and they were really happy with that and then like the Algonquin kids were playing with the English kids and it was really, really nice and all that, and that, that's a nice thing to hear about, but we all know what the English, the Spanish, the French, the Dutch were doing over there. <coughs> sorry, as, as I said earlier, I do have a cold. I'm sorry. But we we know what they did, you know, like, later on, they would give, like, the Indigenous people blankets infected with smallpox. They would just... Massacre these people, you know, kick them off their land, do horrible, horrible things to them and this is part of the beginning of that and this is part of the justification for that and that cannot be ignored when talking about this artwork and the context from which, you know, it comes from and kind of the context in which it was later used and I just think that it's, yeah, when talking about this, well, John White's watercolours are very 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 important not just to art history but to just g- general history and to anthropology and all these different kinds of subjects are really important you have to just be mindful of this colonial in- intent behind them and we have this is something that us in britain and a lot of us in europe we do have to come to terms with that what we did in the in, in in modern times, you know, if you consider mo- modern times to be from about 1450 to 2000, early modern being like 1450 to about 1750, that's when a lot of the European colonial projects are, They they all begin in that 300 year time frame. Okay, yes, yeah, some of them go a lot further, a lot quicker, some of them are a lot more successful, a lot quicker, like the Spanish are very successful, very quickly, so are the Portuguese, Um, Britain a little bit later, but then Britain kind of becomes the most successful of them all, as we all know, so yeah, really, Thomas Harris' brief and true report, you can see that this is kind of the beginnings of the British Empire, starting to take shape, It wouldn't really become what we think of it as for another hundred odd years or so, but in 1620, again, the English go to the Caribbean and take a lot of the land there. So yeah, this is the beginning of that and we have to be when looking at these, so if once you finish listening to me and my coldy voice not knowing what I'm fucking doing here Um, once you're done with this and you want to go and look at John White's drawings and think oh my god wow these are really nice just please, please be mindful that the, there's an intent there's an intent there and we should really be mindful of all this but at the same time there is an, another intent that I find quite interesting which it uh, kind of directly to do with colonialism, kind of not, de- depends how you th- think about uh, certain things, but you can actually consider some of the stuff in a brief intro report as being sort of pro-Jacobean propaganda. So this is all happening in the reign of Elizabeth the and 1585 Elizabeth is, for that time, she's, she's getting on a bit, it's kind of obvious she's not getting married, she's not having kids. And it looks like the next best person to take over is her godson and thir- third cousin, uh, King James the Sixth of Scotland, and he's quite favoured by a lot of the English because because he's a Protestant and he's already been king of Scotland for like 20 years. He became king of Scotland when he was a a little baby. He was he became king when he was about a year old or something really really young but that that's a whole other thing for another time so it's looking like the scottish king's going to inherit and you know historically scotland and england we have not got on that well um at all perhaps we're never going to get on that well but again that's another thing for another time completely but what is so interesting about sort of the connection with this in a brief and true report is um, there's a little section near the end. Here we go. Yeah, so it's the young daughter of the Picts and they depict a lot of the the Picts. Um they sort of they they have like, oh here's Virginia and then it goes back to the Picts, who so if if you're unaware the Picts were um a sort of I guess an early nation of Scottish people on, on in sort of the north and the northeast coast. <coughs> although they have found Pictish stones, kind of near the borders, it is complicated. And the Picts are something I would definitely, I will definitely do a podcast on if people want to listen to me talking shite. um The Picts, uh, they they have oh, just a fantastic. Artistic culture, because that's all we really know about them, that's all that's really left of them. But they're this Scottish people, and I can't seem to find out a lot about you know how the Picts were interpreted during the early modern period during the 16th century. But the Picts, um, yeah, it's interesting that they've chosen them as an example of early British people, um. So, this is what he says when in a brief and true report when he goes on to talk about the Picts. So, he says, The painter of whom I have had the first of the inhabitants of Virginia, give my also this, figures following, found as he did assured me in an old English chronicle, the which I will. would well set to the end of this first figures for to show that the inhabitants of the Great Britain have been in times past as savage as those of Virginia so he's asked um, John White or Theodore de Bry it's, 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 it's unclear if you go on the British Museum website it looks like John White did sort of paint some picts based on his uh, paintings of the Algonquin people, and like it saying like, "Oh, um, Thomas Harriot saying like, 'Ah, oh, not in Britain, we used to just be as savage as these people.' But the fact that he's chosen the Picts, you know, a Scottish people who were Christian. We know they were Christian because, like I said, all that's really left behind of them is their artwork." And these really, really beautiful carved stones, um, and you can just, and a lot of them are just still out, like by the sides of roads and stuff, it's amazing. Um, but a lot of them have a lot of Christian symbolism on them, a lot of them will have very, very ornate, very intricate Celtic crosses on them, and there's a really interesting museum in the north of Scotland in a place called uh, Port Mahomick where my grandfather was born, um, and the, that was the site of a Pictish monastery that was probably founded by the followers of St Columba, the guy, the Irish monk, who brought Christianity to sort of the north of Scotland. I think St Ninian was a bit further down. Anyway, if you go to the museum in Port Mahomick there is a Pictish stone that has a Latin carving on it next to what looked like um, the, the apostles so yeah the pict like the things we know about them is that they really liked carving stones and and they were Christian but then I guess like sort of methods of dating things and studying things uh, studying history in the way we would now was just absolutely nothing like what it would have been back then so they probably didn't know as much about them then as we know about them now but that is interesting that it's sort of like oh, in Britain we used to be very savage, the Scots um, but it's fine because we might have a Scottish king soon and in Britain as a whole we're not as savage as uh, these people in America and you know King James he might be alright, he might be alright you know, we were all like that at one time and he might let us civilise these people. And you know, Jamestown was named after King James after he became King James of England as well in 1603. So there you go. is an interesting little bit of pro-Jacobean propaganda happening there as well, which I thought was just worth mentioning. But yeah, I suppose this hasn't been... Directly all about art, it's more sort of using art as a jumping off point to talk about other things that were going on and sort of the uses of art and what art was being yeah, what art was being used for um in uh the Roanoke colony, and how um sort of John White and Thomas Harriet are doing sort of very, very, very anthropological research and documentation and are able to sort of publish a book about it. And you know and yet like like I've repeatedly said, the intentions of this book, the intentions of the Roanoke colony were not to just let's just go and be mates with the Algonquin people. Absolutely like not at all. But nevertheless it is interesting that there was a willingness to document all this and, you know, make make contact with these people, you know, that's a lot of effort to come up with an entire phonetic alphabet to learn a language that does not come from any, like any other language you would have come across before in your life. You know, there seems to be a willingness to want to learn there, but what the intentions behind that learning would have been, you know, was this learning genuinely because they just wanted to know. Or did they want to know so they could further exploit these people? I'm not sure. I am not sure. And we will never know. But nevertheless, when you know about this, it's like the disappearance, It just it's just not as interesting. It's just not as interesting. The disappearance is just, you know, shit happens when you go to a place um, that you've not really prepped for like shit shit happens and you know that that's that is a shame you know there was like little kids and stuff who could have died they might not have died they might have just assimilated with the croatoan people and if that is the case if if the roanoke colony were in distress and the croatoans who they'd kind of pref- befriended did sort of invite them to come in Assimilate with them, live with them. Then that would imply that maybe the Roanoke colony, as individuals, did not ha- hold very exploitative intentions. Or they certainly did when they were going over there. But after sort of communicating with these people, I don't know. Possibly not. They, 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 that's just a, a theory. That might not be the case at all. There could have been. There could have been a big fight between them all. There could have been a disease. Um. They might have just wandered off off their own back to try and find something else. Maybe the Spanish got them because while well, John White was away, the Armada, the attempted Armada invasion of England uh, happened, and the Spanish were aware that the Roanoke colony is there, so it, it's possible that it was just, you know, these European conflicts coming over the Atlantic and manifesting there. It's entirely possible that that happened. But like I said, we're just never going to know. And you know, it was probably aliens according to to YouTube. It was probably aliens that done it, you know. But uh, yeah, no, that concludes <laughs> my first podcast. Uh, like I said, I had a cold, no idea what I'm doing. I know that was a bit slapdash, but I hope you enjoyed it. And I will hopefully make another slightly more coherent episode about another bit of art history that I find really interesting soon um thank you and once again any pronunciation I got any sort of names of any of the indigenous American people I didn't use the term first nation because I have been told that that's a purely Canadian thing but if that is wrong like just pull me pull me up on all that like please just be like call me out on my shit for that sort of stuff because I just want to try and be respectful of everyone and be respectful of you know the people I talk about um who have been affected their their lives have been affected by the actions of my country my ancestors you know we've gone over there and done terrible things to them and I just you can't change what's happened, but you can at least try to make things right by being respectful and sort of telling a bit of their story in whatever way you can. So if I got any of that wrong, just just say so, and thank you, and yeah, thank you very much. Um, see you in the next one. Enjoy your weekend, your evening, your day, your morning, your commute, wherever you're listening to this. I don't know, but... I bid you... adieu. Thanks.